Good afternoon, everybody. It's Dr. Nigro again with our next episode of Psychology Unplugged. This has been a really fun week. I've had a chance to interact with a lot of you guys. Um, I appreciate a lot of the emails this week uh, about different topics that you would like us to address on the program. Um, uh, one, getting into more uh specifics about addictions uh specifically kind of the neuro uh, pathology neurophysiology uh julie and i are more than happy to do that um another suggestion was on intellectual disability disorder uh which was previously called mental retardation um and the, the comorbidities with uh psychiatric conditions such as bipolar schizophrenia depression i think these are two great topics that that warrant attention uh and uh we will definitely uh address these topics uh in the future so uh you guys found this program uh generally know that uh I'd never have a topic that I'm going to specifically talk about uh, until I'm getting ready to do the podcast. But um, Julie was asking me earlier, uh, what are you doing today? I was like, I think I'm going to do existentialism and maybe some of the work by Viktor Frankl. Uh, he came up with a term called logotherapy which is a really cool um, and interesting version in terms of treating, uh, you know, back in that time period was depression, anxiety, neuroses. Uh, if you want to read or learn more about existentialism, the classic book by Viktor Frankl is Man's Search for Meaning, and I would certainly recommend that. Um However, today's topic, I'm going to focus on dissociation. Uh, it is it is a controversial topic because through PET scans, MRIs, EEGs, uh, spec scans, somebody who is actively dissociating, there are no physiological changes in any of the brain structures. Now, dissociation is not synonymous with psychosis, and it is not synonymous with any of the delusional disorders. That's a separate topic in and of itself. So if you guys remember the, the, the book Sybil, that was kind of the gold standard. It used to be called multiple personality disorders. Uh, it was later revealed not so long ago that the author of the book completely made the book up. There never was an actual patient who had that many different identities. And if you understand personality theory and development, I've said before, personality in and of itself is crystallized between five and eight years of age. So somebody, there is no such thing as multiple personalities. Uh, there was a TV show. Uh, I think the guy from my big fat Greek wedding was the husband. It was a, it was an interesting show. It was called the, um, I think it was called the University of Terra. And they tried to depict, um, 
multiple personal personality at that time, which is again now dissociative identity disorder. So in the diagnostic manual, uh, we have the traumatic disorders. The next chapter uh, are what are called the dissociative disorders. And um, when I when I when I talk about specific diagnoses, I, I will refer to the DSM. So in terms of dissociative identity disorder, uh, criterion A is disruption of identity characterized by two or more distinct personality states. Uh, it's very important in working with individuals if there is a cultural component, because many cultures, different cultures, can determine this type of psychopathology as a form of possession. Um, the disruption in identity involves marked discontinuity in sense of self and sense of agency accompanied by related alterations in affect, which is emotion, behavior, consciousness, memory, perception, cognition, and or sensory motor functioning. And these, these signs and symptoms can be observed by others, and they're generally observed by the individual themselves. Um, there's recurrent gaps in the recall of everyday events. Um, people report almost losing track of time. Uh, important losing important personal information, like what was I doing in the parking lot at the mall? I have no idea why I'm here and the, the car is running and or traumatic events that are inconsistent with ordinary forgetting. So, you know, we may forget a phone number. One thing I'm terrible at remembering are, are people's names and, and phone numbers. Given In the world of smartphones and contacts, I, I, I know my wife's number. I know my late father's number. I know my brother's, both their numbers. Uh Aside from that, I don't remember, I don't really remember numbers. And I think a lot of us out there don't because we have access to technology. Um, and the symptoms cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, academic, or other areas of functioning. And that is a caveat that, that criteria I just mentioned in all psychiatric conditions that just because you wash your hands a lot doesn't mean you have OCD. Just because you go and check to make sure the doors are locked, the windows are shut, the stove is turned off, does not mean you have OCD. All of the psychiatric conditions have to cause social, emotional, and or occupational impairment. So in dissociative identity disorder, one of the most important things, if we just talk about, let me step back for a second. When you're talking about dissociation in general, it is, I've said this before in multiple episodes, you always want to rule out the physiological because dissociation can be related to non-epileptiform activity, non-seizure activity. You want to rule out absence seizures and partial complex seizures as a possible explanatory etiology if with this manifestation. So dissociation, if we rule out, in terms of dissociative identity disorder, if we rule out organicity, and by that I mean no epileptiform activity, there's generally two to three 
other identities that an individual will take on. One, one obviously the person has their own personality. One identity typically is a regressive version of the self, more of a childlike version. Another is the kind of the, the, the punisher, the, the negative, intrusive thoughts of you're a bad person, you deserve to have this experience happen to you, you deserve to have been raped. And the other is kind of this, um, is the protector, is the one that kind of oversees and suppresses. Now, it's it, it's really important in 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 so in in PTSD dissociation or dissociative identity disorder. There's a high comorbidity between the two, I mean a high association. There's also um, a lot of individuals with borderline personality disorder will dissociate. In term in in times of high stress, highly stressful situations, and again, dissociation is not a psychotic disconnect from reality. It is a very immediate disconnect. We're designed to do one of two things: procreate and survive. So dissociative identity disorder, from my perspective, is more of a psychological survival state to help the individual stave off whatever fear that they may be experiencing if they're, if they're you know, re-experiencing a traumatic event. But the interesting thing is um, it, it, it's a separation from reality and with the gaps in memory of really not being able to recall like, oh my God, where did those 45 minutes go? Now, there's something called dissociative amnesia where there's just a temporary disconnect from reality that's different from dissociative identity disorder. Uh, the, the treatment for, if you just use the acronym DID, this is long-term treatment, just as trauma work is long-term treatment. This is not three weeks. This is not six months. This is not a year. This is a few years uh, of working through trauma, whether it's, uh, Singular trauma, you know, take the example, somebody was raped. That's, a, you know, a singular trauma. When you get into like complex trauma, there may be a rape. There may be parental abuse. There may have been relational abuse. There may have been other, you know, a, a motor vehicle accident. So complex trauma is, it's treatable, it just takes a lot longer to work through that process. But when I work with patients, and I use again a very, uh, I use a very consistent uh, cognitive behavioral approach. But there are other modalities such as EMDR, and I'd love to have one of my great colleagues on um, here in Massachusetts who does some phenomenal work with with treating dissociative identity disorder. So as a neuropsychologist and a diagnostician, my, I'm primarily focusing on 
what the actual diagnostic picture is and how that diagnostic picture manifests idiosyncratic to them. If, if we move ahead for a second to the conversion disorders, these are really kind of a neat group of disorders because these are individuals who present with psychiatric and oftentimes, many times, physiological symptoms of which there is no medical explanation for them. It could be paralysis. It could be abnormal movement. It could be swallowing problems, speech problems, uh, pseudo-seizures, uh, a sensory loss, uh, special sensory symptoms like enhanced visual, olfactory, even hearing disturbances. So, but again, there's no physiological cause for them. So what you, in these types of disorders, the MMPI is a great assessment for adolescents and adults in picking up if there's what's called conversion hysteria. So you want to look is if there is something called a secondary gain. Is there a motivation for me to present as being physically and or psychiatrically impaired or ill? I see this a lot in cases where somebody's trying to get disability, workman's comp. There's some benefit. You know, the old term was... Um, Munchausen syndrome, it's now called factitious disorder, either imposed on the self or the individual is, and, and they, they truly believe that they have these symptoms. They are, they are, they really resist psychological interpretations of their symptoms, or there's a factitious dis disorder imposed on another, or factitious disorder by proxy. That's the mother who's giving their child Ipecac. That's the mother who's giving their child arsenic. That's the mother who's taking their daughter or son to the emergency room. And multiple times, they, 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 the, that individual is deriving so much psychological gratitude as being the savior, even though they're engaging in egregious behaviors to make a loved one purposely sick and the and that loved one actually believes they are sick and they have a strong attachment to that primary caregiver because they're the ones driving them to the appointments they're the ones calling the specialists they're the ones taking them to mass general they're the ones doing all the legwork trying to find the answers of which there are none the answers basically reside in that individual who is purposely making this person sick. Now, if you get back to dissociative identity disorder, uh, the legal system really kind of rejects this as, as an explanatory factor for people who commit crimes. Well, I, I was, I was in a dissociative state because at the end of the day, you cannot negate that there is the primary sense of self, but there are, I guess, the best way to explain it, the idea is, uh, is a defense mechanism, a defense mechanism against the sense of self to try to remove the mind from anything that connects them to a traumatic event. And, you know, you could, you can do your best if you have trauma to avoid as many Again, I said this, I hate this term is so overused, triggers. Um, but there are going to be times when you're going to interact with a store clerk. There's going to be times when a friend 
contacts you. There are going to be times when somebody moves a certain way that, and if you have a history of trauma, that will evoke uh, almost the startle response, and the mind can go into one of these dissociative states. And again, in borderline personality, this is a very common experience, but again, it is not psychosis. It is not delusional. Is it organic, as I said initially? No, it's not. It's really a psychological etiology. Is it treatable? Yes, but it's really connected to the work with trauma. Ruling out organicity, as I said, these disorders, whether it's dissociative, whether it's dissociation or conversion disorders, these individuals, uh, in, in my private practice, I, I see a, I think a pretty high number of people and the, the DSM prevalence rates show that this, this pathology is significantly higher in women. Not sure why. Um, possibly because maybe more sexual trauma is, is done to women, uh, more abuse in relationships. Uh, men tend to underreport abuse of, of any kind, physical, sexual, emotional, verbal, mental. I think it's more of a pride thing or a, a minimization thing. And, you know, Julie's here as well. Um, cause I was asking her like, like from a medication standpoint, like people may have like, you know, horrible nightmares. So she'll typically give like Prazosin, which is a medication that is used to uh, manage nightmares. Uh, some of the research has shown that people who have been raped and they're immediately taken to the emergency room and given propanolol, uh, sometimes that memory dissipates. But there are also some other people, and I'm not sure why, who've had pretty severe trauma, but they don't want to forget it. They they don't want to remember it. And that's more of a therapeutic issue in terms of why do you want to hold on to that? It could be for a variety of reasons. I want to live my life impaired. I want to get disability. I want to be a victim. Uh, I or I, Or I'm simply not ready. I am simply not ready. And trauma work has to be done by somebody who has experience in training and doing it. A lot of times when somebody comes in into, into uh, initial psychotherapy and you're doing a background and they mention trauma, I've seen this a lot. Uh, a lot of clinicians will gravitate right towards the trauma as that's the causative factor. You've heard me say this a million times. Medications and therapy without neuropsych testing is like surgery without an x-ray. That may be the presenting issue, but the testing is able to delineate with such specificity how those symptoms manifest idiosyncratic to them. And then you're going to have the ancillary uh diagnoses that that that, that manifest in conjunction. Anxiety, depression, panic disorder. And again, from the diathesis stress model, the intersection of uh, genetics and psychopathology, yes, they can also lead to the, you know, kind of like the key turn, turning into the lock can lead to the, it's called like the ontogenesis or the manifestation of bipolarity, cyclothymia, uh, schizophrenia, a whole host of other conditions. So I'm going to ask Julie to step on for a second to talk about 
you know, the medication perspective of treating like dissociation and PTSD and kind of get her perspective on it. Um, so I think with PTSD, I think with PTSD, we're generally looking at um, treating with an SNRI or an SSRI to treat the overall generalized anxiety um, and post-traumatic stress uh, disorder itself. Um, thus, de- decreasing the episodes of dissociation. Um, dissociation is actually a self-preservation. To, um, it's self-preservation for the individual. Um, it is a fight or flight. Um, it's it's similar to like the reptilian brain, where the body really is is taking over. Um, a situation and there's memory in the body. So, um, dissociation is very confusing for people because people feel sometimes like they're stoned. Um, like they, they're there, they're not there, or they're outside of themselves and they're looking in, watching things happen. Um, some of it is just they don't, they don't have any memory of it at all. They just know that they did something. Um, you know, and they're, they weren't aware of, the fact that they did something, but that they realized afterwards, like, wow, like it comes to them after the fact. In terms of treating, you know, I always recommend to patients, they really see it in hindsight. Um, It obviously uh, very rarely happens in your therapy session um, and or your medication provider session. But when it does happen, I always recommend to people just get, if you can, just make sure you're safe. Um, it will pass. Uh, it, you know, it varies in time length, um, some longer than others. The more anxious you are about it, um, the more it probably will last. But if you are in that, or you kind of feel it coming on, um, or it catches you by surprise, just know, just get somewhere safe, sit down, you know, text a friend, call a loved one, um, or just sit there and let it pass. You know, if you're in your car, pull over, and just, you know, catch your breath, um, let it pass. We use grounding techniques, but I find that sometimes it's very difficult for people to use grounding techniques in the moment. Um, but that is really what, you know, therapy is all about. We'll talk about the, uh, the different minds, the emotional, the wise. I don't want to talk about that right now. Oh, all right. <laughs> um, I was talking, thinking about more like, um, you know, medications that you can take for this, uh, you know, sometimes people will take benzodiazepines, you know, your Ativan, um, Clonopin, Xanax, um, you know, in those moments, do I think it really does much? I don't know. I mean, anything to reduce the anxiety. I'm always looking to do it overall. Clonidine's another medication that is, you know, an antihypertensive, but it's also an anxiolytic. And then, you know, if people are anxious, it can calm down the blood pressure. It calms down the physiological response to stress. Um, benzos do this as well. Um, again, you know, it depends. Talk to your provider about it. Um, always talk to your therapist about if you're having, these can be very scary and make people feel very alone. It's just like people who hear and see things that aren't really there. You're not like bump, you know, chest bumping your friends or high five and people be like, Hey, guess what? I'm, you know, guess what's happening to me. Um, but it's very, very common dissociation. Um, it happens to so many people. Um, it's more common than you think. 
So, you know, from a, from a treatment perspective, it's what I what I always recommend to people is if they've had a dissociative experience, go back to the cognitive behavioral therapy therapy model, X causes Y. Once you can get out of that distressing emotional and physiological state, what was happening prior to you experiencing dissociation, you will invariably find that there is a common thread and a common uh, theme. Again, it could be tone of voice, can be it, 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 it's something that's connecting you back to something that happened before. And it usually will catch you out of surprise. So if, if you're having, if, if, you know, using rape again as example, if you drive past the house every day that you were raped, easy solution, stop driving past the house, take a different way to work. But say they're doing construction and you have the detour and you have to drive past that house you're going to be like more likely to have some type of physiological and or psychological reactivity to it. But it's really important that if you dissociate, one, you are not psychotic, two, you are not delusional, three, you are not crazy, which actually used to be a clinical term prior to, I think, 1954, um, when we had the first... Um, DSM. But really, you know, the patients I've worked with, um, a lot of them being having borderline personality pathology, it's, I, I always encourage them that, you know, to keep a journal on hand so that once you get out of that distressing state, what was happening before and getting getting data is crucial in psychotherapy. Getting data is essential in doing cognitive behavioral psychotherapy because once you can identify the X's, we know what the Y is. Well, if we stick with dissociation, the Y is the dissociation. What was the X? What was the precipitating factor? And there are going to be commonalities. There are going to be um, analogous um uh, situations and that becomes very important from a therapeutic perspective to then work with the individual on how to navigate future situations that evoke the dissociation but as i said earlier this is long-term treatment this is not easy you know next next day one week two weeks this is this is at least weekly therapy at the at the bare minimum because dissociation can be very scary because you start to question your own sanity am i losing my mind what happened to these these last 2 hours why is my car running in a parking lot what was i at the mall for i have no idea but i'm able to regain that and start asking those questions very important questions to ask but that's what you bring to your therapy sessions and again, the link between, I think they should have put, you know, they have the conversion disorders or the somatoform disorders in the DSM as a separate category. I think they should have put them in the same category as the dissociative symptoms because they do mimic each other. And you always have to look for, is there a, a, a secondary gain? Is there a reason that you're telling me this story? Is there a reason that you're having this, these experiences? Are you actually having these experiences or, or, or are you just feigning them in order to gain something else, whether that's attention, uh, affection, uh, neediness, uh, 
clingingness, uh, disability, like I said, uh, something else that I, you, when you act a certain way in order to have a second motivation and the, the MMPI is a great tool in being able to pick up these things because it has built in validity scale to really differentiate, um, to tell if you're lying, if you're faking or if you're being overly defensive. So this is a very deep topic. Uh, I just wanted to broach this because over the past week, I've, I've spoken with several people, uh, regarding dissociation, whether it was like dissociative amnesia, dissociative identity disorder. And I thought it's a very relevant topic because it's incredibly scary. It's, it, it's, it's frightening, but realize you're not psychotic. It's your body's way of protecting yourself. It's your mind's way of protecting yourself. You may experience physiological symptoms. You may experience psychological symptoms. You may experience both. That is okay. That is part of the pathology. Is it treatable? Absolutely. Like I said, short term, no. Long term, yes. Um, all right. So again, until next week, uh, feel free to reach out to me through Psychology Today, Psychology Unplugged at Outlook.com. My phone number is 617-750-9411, Eastern Standard Time in the United States. Uh, this is a great opportunity. I'm very humbled by all the feedback. I'm looking forward to all of you guys flying in from different parts of the country to, um, See me for neuropsychy valves. I I had never expected that it would. This podcast would kind of get to that level. Uh, it was more about just being a diagnostician and seeing how many people misdiagnosed, underdiagnosed, overdiagnosed. Uh, but I love doing this every week. And I and again the feedback and the more topics you guys can email me that that I can talk about, Julie can talk about, or the both of us can talk about. That that's kind of what this is all about. It's just pure enjoyment and pleasure. I look forward to doing this every week. A lot of you guys have asked me to do more episodes every week. I would love, I would love to. It's in terms of, you know, finding the time, doing two neuropsych evals six days a week, writing the evals that are 60, 70, 80, 90, 150 pages, depending because I'm overly anal when it comes to testing. But uh, this is such a cool field. Uh, People are fascinating. Psychopathology is fascinating, but there is hope. Always, always, always have hope. If you put the work in, you'll get to where you want to go. All right? I've seen it. It happens. It works. Um, Until next time, take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Be well. And I will talk to you guys next week.